0: Good morning, Capital City Church. Good we're going to be reading in Exodus 16 this morning. Uh, your sermon notes and on the screen it says, verses 1 through 35, take heart, we're not reading 35 verses. <laughs> I forgot to change, I always start with the entire scope of the story and then whittle it down. So, we're going to read uh, 11 or 12 verses. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because He has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against Him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Verse 9, Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Uh, Well, as you have figured out by now, we're in a sermon series called Exodus, where we're working our way this fall through the story of Exodus. It's not just the Old Testament book of the Exodus, although that's where we are currently. We're also going to work our way kind of skimming over the mountaintops of some of the key points of the story, also through the book of Numbers between now and uh, Thanksgiving. Uh, So we have now made it out of Egypt as far as the story of the Israelites and their release from bondage. Uh, we uh, kind of preached that they came through the Red Sea so now they're out of Egypt Uh, in their story and in our story we move away from something and we move towards something listen so while you may be praying that God would release you that God would relieve you that God would deliver you it's not wrong to pray those prayers by the way it's not wrong for us to ask God to remove our pain or remove our difficulty or remove our suffering it's not wrong But we always pray, as Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, ultimately, nevertheless, not my will, but your will. Because, God, I know that you don't just want to deliver me from something, you are calling me to something. And I just want you to hear this now. I know for most of us in this room, and I would include myself in that, there are probably areas of our life where we feel like we're suffering. Maybe it's relatively minor, maybe it's major, but we've certainly experienced suffering. Most of us have. We're either in the middle of it or we've been in it in the past, right? So what we don't realize is so often what God's calling us to, the path to that goes through suffering and difficulty and so uh, as we talk today uh, part five of this series as you see on your sermon notes our title is leaving scarcity through provision so as we're going to leave scarcity the path out is going to be through believing in God's provision that even though things may seem scarce we can believe that God's going to provide what we need God doesn't always provide what we want right See, I was wondering if you were listening, and that was the test. God doesn't always provide what we want, does He? There you go, because if He did, I'd be driving a Ferrari. Here we are. I don't know what to say, right? God doesn't always provide the things that are all of our wildest dreams coming true, right? You can make a lot of money in the religious world by telling people that God will give you whatever you want if you have enough faith, but that's not the story of the Bible, God provides our needs. So often we mix up our needs and our wants, right? Dependence on God is the belief that he can provide, listen, and that he will provide. Not just that he can, not just that he has the power, but that he actually will provide for us. That we're going to depend on God's providence We're going to depend on God's sovereignty. We're going to depend on God's miracle-working power, that he will provide our needs at the right time and in the right way. So the idea of scarcity actually is a very interesting subject. Uh, When we are experiencing scarcity, right, when we're experiencing a lack of extra, it actually begins to reprogram the way that we think. And so I brought up this book up here, and you don't have to read it. You don't have to. It's called Scarcity there's a title for you to remember, right? Uh, it came out years ago. It, it was a, I think, I'm pretty sure it's a New York Times bestseller, right? And it's not a religious book at all, but it's about how uh, scarcity, anytime a human experiences scarcity, it actually begins to change the way that you think. Listen to this, see if this doesn't make sense to you. And actually, when you're in the throes of scarcity, it can really uh, enable you in bad ways to make really bad decisions. How many of you have ever seen someone who was experiencing some sort of scarcity and then you watch the decisions they're making and you're going, well, my goodness. That's how you got scarcity, right? Well, actually, there's some science behind it that scarcity can rewire our brain and it temporarily changes our brains and it actually decreases our cognitive performance. In other words, Scarcity really does change the way that you think if you're human. And it doesn't change it for the good. It doesn't change it for the positive. And so for you and I, this is the part that's not in the book, right? That's the explanation of of how we got here. But for you and I as believers, we can know that faith can bridge that gap. Faith can bridge the gap for us out of scarcity into believing that God's gonna provide what we need at the right time and in the right way. So here's the thing. We're going to start kind of, what I'm about to say to you is difficult, okay? It's going to be tough to hear. But we're going to work our way through this story, and we actually end on a high note, because I think the story ends on a high note. I think the story ends in a very encouraging way, even for people who don't get it right. How many of us in here don't get it right sometimes? Yeah, all of us, right? We just, we, we mess it up. And so then we're kind of, if you're like me, and I bet some of you are at least, uh, we wonder, am I experiencing scarcity because I made bad choices? Well, I don't, maybe that's true, I don't know. Am I experiencing scarcity because of God's judgment on me? Okay, now you've got to start treading lightly because that's not how God works, okay? But I will say this listen, Exodus really is, this is the tough part, by the way. See, I set you up there. We're excited. Now here comes the <laughs> tough part. Exodus, really, the storyline of the Exodus, not just the book, not just the Bible book, but the story, the narrative of the Israelites and their release from bondage in Egypt and they're moving toward the promised land. That entire storyline really is a story about rebellion. But here's what I want you to see. Listen, from this point forward... We're no longer talking about Pharaoh's rebellion. That part of the story ended. Guess whose rebellion we're talking about from this point forward? You've read the story. (laughs) I love it, right? You know the story. I know the story. Here's here's the point I want to make, and then we're going to move on. We're going to jump in very quickly and make some observations, but I want you to hear this. I'm not saying that spiritual attack is not real. I'm not saying that you don't have a real enemy named the devil. You do. Spiritual warfare is real, okay? But I want you to hear this, and I love you, I really do. But the biggest obstacle to your spiritual growth is you, it's not out there somewhere. I'm not saying that you don't get attacked from time to time. I'm not saying that that's not the case. And I know some of you lately, in fact, I've had several conversations, one on one conversations with a few of you. And I know that in the last couple, three weeks, there's been some heavy spiritual warfare in your life. I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying, I've seen in my life over 30 years of walking with the Lord, most often, my biggest enemy is me, it's my stinking thinking. It's my selfishness. You know what? Listen, it turns out I really am a sinner. <laughs> That's not just something that we say when Tom leads us through the confession, right? That's not just, we, like, it's for real. You want to know the biggest problem in my marriage? I'm a sinner. You know the biggest problem with my parenting? I'm a sinner. You know the biggest problem in the way I lead this church? Say it with me. You are correct. (laughs) You've seen the evidence, haven't you? Guess what? You are too. This is real gospel theology. This is all of us, right? So before we start looking out there for boogeymen spiritually, let's start by looking in the mirror and saying, what can, because here's the thing, this is the beauty of it. This is so cool. Listen. If you're the problem, you also have the potential, the opportunity to forge a solution. With God's Spirit working through you, you are both at the same time. Do you see how, how cool is that, right? And here's the beautiful part of it. Here's the real gospel theology behind it. It's not up to you to fix it by yourself. It's up to you to let God live his life through you. You know, listen, I love America, but we we we've, we've fallen victim to this idea that it's our job to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. There is no gospel in that. That's not the Christian life. You don't pull yourself up by your bootstraps or your discipline. We're going to talk more about that in just one second. So a month and a half has passed in this narrative since the Israelites left Egypt, they're already complaining. Hasn't been that long ago. Do you remember what we talked about last week? Do you remember the story of the Red Sea? Right? How incredible is that story? It's a high water mark, pun intended, because I'm a dad. It's a high water mark in the Old Testament, right? This is one of the seminal stories in the Old Testament. I told you last week, 25 separate times in the Old Testament that story is referenced. And within six weeks they're complaining they saw the Red Sea parted and then they make their way into an area where they can't find water to drink do you remember this story Mara the story of the bitter water made sweet they find finally find a spring and it's bitter and God tells Moses to throw a tree in the spring and so he does and suddenly the bitter water becomes the best water they've ever drank like they saw that they saw the Red Sea and then they saw kind of this minor miracle and now they're hungry Or maybe we would say they're hangry, right? (laughs) So hungry that they're making bad choices. And yet, your hunger is not to blame. It's your sinfulness. For all of us, our sin is always the problem. And so they make these uh, bad choices, so we're going to unpack those. Now I want to make two very quick observations, and then we're going to follow it kind of with a time of prayer together. Uh, So the first thing about scarcity, this is in your notes. Here they are making these horrible choices. A place of scarcity really can be a place of negativity. Look with me in verse 3. I think I heard some of you chuckle when we were reading this a few minutes ago. Uh, The people of Israel said to them in verse 3, Would that we had died by the hands of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Thanks for cheering us up, guys. Really? After all that you've seen, that's the best you can come up with? We were better off in Egypt because we had plenty to eat And you brought us out here to kill us. I just wish God would have killed us in Egypt and we could have died with full bellies. Listen, like they said that out loud to someone. I have to be careful because sometimes when I hear people say things, that's what I want to respond with. Like, I can't believe you said that out loud. It's bad enough you were thinking it. But to say it out loud? I've said a few of those things myself, have you? I wish there was a linguistic context to soften this. I wish I could tell you that in the original it's not nearly as bad as it sounds, but it's not true. This is just a bonehead thing to say. It's just a a horrible decision. I can't soften this. I don't have a contextual explanation for it. It's just a bad decision. It is just as ridiculous as it sounds to you and me, and yet we've said some pretty ridiculous things on our own, haven't we? Anybody in here struggle with negativity? Anybody struggle around others who are negative? (laughs) It's a joy, isn't it? And yet we can all get sucked into it negativity really come, can come out of scarcity. And I'm telling you, I've seen this in my life and in the lives of others. Some people that I love dearly who struggle with negativity, and it's because there was in their past especially there was a, there was a layer of, of scarcity, and they don't even realize how it reprogrammed the way that they think and the way that they speak and the way that they treat others and make decisions. So three observations very quickly about distortion. This this negative distortion that we experience, right? The first one is that distortion brings drama. <laughs> distortion brings drama. Oh, that we would have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. What an exaggeration. What an exaggeration. And yet exaggerating is exactly what we do when we allow a scarcity mindset and, and not choosing to exercise faith in God, not choosing, listen, even those circumstances and sometimes even your own mind pull you away from it, not choosing to lean our way into our faith in God and who God is. We can tend to exaggerate our present difficulties. I put this in your notes very quickly from Mark four thirty-eight. You remember the story of Jesus and that he's with disciples on the Sea of Galilee, and they're in the boat, and there's a bad storm, and he's asleep down in the bottom of the boat. You remember that story? This is the kind of the tail end of the story. He was in the stern asleep on the cushion. They woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? I just sometimes wonder if there are some questions that we shouldn't even answer. Like, did he care? Do you guys think he cared? Yeah, you're in church, so you should, probably the answer is yes. Yeah, absolutely he cared. Now, I'm not minimizing the storm. And by the way, these were fishermen. It was probably a pretty bad storm. We see a really bad storm later in his ministry, don't we? And he comes walking to them in the middle of it. And yet, to ask God a question like this, do you even care? I know in our human mind, in our frailty, we think this way, this is the way that our mind works. But he did care. Listen, and they weren't perishing. They were just scared. It's okay to be scared. But I'm telling you, A place of scarcity and a place of fear will almost immediately look at me. It will springboard you into doubt and it will give you an excuse to stay there. And you have to be careful with it. Distortion brings drama. Second of all, distortion brings deception. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. Here we go. Distortion bringing deception. When we sat by the meat pots, and ate bread to the full. Sounds like life was just grand in Egypt, doesn't it? Is that deception? Oh, come on. Absolutely. Listen, I, I'm old enough now, especially, I start to look back with nostalgia on my life, right? I, I look back, I, I, I grew up, for the most part, I kind of grew up in the 80s. And so I, and, and not here, I'm from Florida, central Florida. And so I can remember, oh, it was just, it was so great then. It was such an idyllic time. And then I remember we didn't have air conditioning <laughs> in Florida. Like, I don't know how we lived, right? I'm just saying we, we all can fall victim to this romanticizing of the past. Boy, those were the days, weren't they? Maybe they were, I don't know. But do we believe that God's present here and now and today? Do we believe that God's still with us? And that God wants to do something new with us and in us? So my wife... Uh, there's a a Christian artist that my wife loves to listen to. Her name's Sarah Groves. I don't know how many of you are familiar with her. And so uh, years ago, my wife got me, you know, we were in the car together and she got me listening to this and and I immediately went back to this song. She has a song called Painting Pictures of Egypt. And the the words of the chorus are this, listen. She says, I've been painting pictures of Egypt and leaving out what it lacks." Because the future feels so hard, and I want to go back. Isn't that true? Isn't that what we do? We just kind of go back because we, we remember it maybe differently. We leave some things out, right? D- distortion, if we're not careful, really can bring deception of the way that things were. And if listen, if your enemy can get you with one foot living in the past, he's got you half done. God's calling you forward with a heritage, right? We're not turning our back on the past. We carry the lessons that we've learned with us into the future, but God's always calling us into new, especially when God's calling you to move forward and to make progress as he was doing here. Listen, for just a second, try to think like Satan in this story. Here are the Israelites. They come out of Egypt they made it through the Red Sea, you'd think that's the slam dunk, right? The game's over there. If I can just get them more focused on what was behind them than on what's in front of them, then the battle's half won. It actually makes perfect sense that they would do this, that they would be tempted to do this. So the third thing, distortion. First of all, distortion brings drama. Then distortion brings deception. Last of all, distortion brings doubt. It just brings doubt. This is what they're saying to Moses. And as you heard when we read the text, they're ultimately not just saying this to Moses. Ultimately, whether they realized it or not, they were grumbling against God. This is what they say. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. What must it be like? To say, God, we're hungry and we think you're going to let us die. What, what kind of doubt and fear must they have been experiencing? And again, I know they were hungry. I get it. But when we despair of our future without leaning into our faith, we can't see the hand of God in our story. And the first thing that came to my mind as I was thinking back through this was actually the story of Joseph, which they were just a few generations removed from, right? Do you remember the story of Joseph? The story of Joseph is how the Israelites, and they, they went into uh, Egypt as a family of about 70 people. They come out as a nation of 6 million. The, the family of 70 that went, the story of Joseph got them there, You remember the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis his brothers throw him in a pit and they have this business meeting right which we have in churches sometimes they have this business meeting and say what do you think we should do do you think we should kill him and the nicest of the brothers says nah let's sell him instead (laughs) so they sell him into slavery he winds up rising and then falling again he winds up in prison right and you remember the end of the story, the end of the book of Genesis, he's, he's second in command in the, in the nation of Israel, there's a fa- or in the nation of Egypt, there's a famine, everyone's hungry and his brothers come to him to ask for grain and they don't recognize him. Like if you can write the climax of a movie, you can't write a better climax than that. And you just want to lean over and elbow Joseph and say, okay, nail him. They're right in front of you. They sold you into slavery. You've experienced unspeakable suffering and pain and difficulty because of them. Now's your chance. Genesis 50-20. It's the Genesis 50-20 principle. Are you ready? You meant this for evil. But God meant it for good. That's the upside down of what they're doing. You brought us into this suffering, into this wilderness to kill us. And Joseph says, no matter how bad things got, I know that God is for me. No matter how much I've suffered, I know that God is with me. And I know that even though other people may be attacking me, even though others may have set themselves up against me, God has my back. And He's with me, and He's for me, and He's going to bring something great about this. In this spiritual jujitsu, right, you're coming at me with all this energy trying to attack me, but God twists it and turns it around and, and sends you the other way because He knows what He's doing. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. place of scarcity can be a place of negativity. Here's the second point. Provision always points us back to God and His providence. Provision always points us back to God and His providence. Look with me in verse 12. I've heard the grumbling of the people of Israel say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Now the next sentence, listen, is echoes. If you remember just a few weeks ago when we talked about the plagues, these are, this is an echo of that. Look at the last sentence in verse 12. Then you shall know. That I am the Lord your God. Listen, the purpose of what you're seeing, the purpose of what you're experiencing, isn't just to resolve some kind of food crisis, although I'm not saying God doesn't care that you're hungry, that God doesn't care, that God doesn't want you to have food. We're not saying that at all. The purpose is not just what you can see and feel and touch. There's always a bigger picture. And yes, I know it's repetitive to say that provision points us back to God's providence. By design, it is repetitive. Because the point of provision, listen to, if there is provision, then there is a provider. And I don't want you and I to become so focused on the provision that we miss the provider. Because the provider, providing for your needs, is not just so that you won't be hungry or you won't be naked or you won't have a place to live or you won't have a job. It's not just those things. I'm not saying those things aren't important. There's always a bigger picture. And the bigger picture is God wants us to be pointed back to Him. Provision always points us back to God. I love this. It's a little subtle thing. In verse 3, listen. In verse 3, the Israelites grumbled and they said, in the land of Egypt, we ate bread to the full. We ate bread to the full. In verse 12, God's response is, in the morning you shall be filled with bread. We ate bread to the full. And God's response in verse 12 is, you're about to be full. Same word. Same word. You know what I love about it? Oh, this is good. When God says it, it's passive. It's a passive voice. Listen to me. When you tell God you're hungry, you know what the most beautiful music you can hear back from him is? You're about to be filled. Not that you, not go fill yourself. You're about to be filled. And as much as we're going to circle back to this at the end, as much as we see they're grumbling in this story, God doesn't lose His patience with them. God's so patient with them. You're about to be filled. By the way, we don't escape this in the New Testament. The purpose of God's provision is to point us back to God. We don't escape this in the New Testament. It's reinforced in Matthew six eleven in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day, He couldn't give us like a month's supply. Can we just say, God, it's January 1st, give us this year our yearly bread and we'll take it from there. Come on, isn't that how you think? That's how I think. I put this in your notes. Our goal is not to outgrow our dependence on our Heavenly Father. You feel the American bootstrap thing I was talking about earlier? I get it. I've been pre-programmed to think that way as well. If it is up to me, it is up to me. I'm not saying you don't have to hustle and work hard and make good choices, right? I'm not saying that you don't have a role to play. But man, oh man, think about this. Listen up. Think about this. God wants you to be dependent on Him. And He wants you to realize how dependent on Him because you really, really are. The goal of the spiritual life is not for there to become a point where you graduate and you no longer have to depend on God. And I'm just telling you, if you live your life thinking that way, you're setting yourself up for disappointment and for frustration with God. It is not God's goal for you to ever graduate and move out of His house and no longer need Him. That's not the goal. Jesus said we should pray, give us this day our daily bread. By the way, listen, some of you may not like this, and it's okay. I'm not saying that we don't need to save and we don't need to prepare and we don't need to, you know, live wise lives. But the solution, listen, the solution for worry and anxiety is not enough. That one day in the future, I'll have enough. I'll have enough money saved. I'll have enough safety in this relationship. I'll have enough, you know, the the right kind of house, the right kind of vehicle, the right kind of job. One day I'll have enough, and I'll be fully self-sufficient. That is not God's goal for your life. And I'm just telling you, there's nothing wrong with saving, and nothing wrong with preparing, and nothing wrong for being ready for emergencies. But the solution for anxiety is not enough. You know why? Because there's never enough. The solution for worry and anxiety is faith. It's faith. You do your part. Do the best that you can to be prepared. But if, you're, if you think that you're going to be able to save enough that you're never going to be prepared for any situation, well, I'm going to ask you, can you imagine a $10 million situation? I can. How much? It, this is the danger when we try to combat anxiety and worry on our own. You're not big enough to solve that problem. The solution to worry and anxiety is faith. In 1 Peter 5 7, Peter told us to cast all our anxieties on him, that's Jesus, because he cares for us. He cares for you, and he's calling you to cast your worry and anxiety on him. Why? Because anxiety really can ruin the work of God in your life. In fact, I'll tell you this. It's one of the most, one of the most effective tools that your enemy possesses is your anxiety and your worry, and it really can ruin the work that God is doing. Peter is calling us in this verse to cast our anxiety on him and more specifically to cast our anxiety away from us, not because our circumstances are better. Because by the way, if you look at the audience that 1 Peter was written to, they didn't have very good circumstances. Really, humanly speaking, Peter shouldn't have said those words to them because they had a pretty rough life. And yet he says, cast all your anxiety on him, not because your circumstances are great, And not because you have a firm handle on your circumstances, listen to me and look at me, but because your God can be trusted. He deserves to be trusted. Here's the thing. This story wasn't really about bread and meat. It really wasn't. This story is about faith and obedience. What God's saying to them is, and this is what he's saying to us, Now that you're free, will you trust me and serve me? This is the call of discipleship, by the way. I'm not questioning your faith. But as you and I want to grow in our faith and we want to grow in our obedience, this is the calling. Now that you're free, will you trust me and serve me? Now that you're free, Will you follow the law that I've given you? Not because I'm some kind of harsh lawgiver, but because I really do know what's best for your life. Can you lay down your arms and stop trying to solve all your problems on your own? I know this is a tough ask, but even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of your hunger, Can you trust that God's gonna provide? Can you trust that God loves you and that He's sovereign enough to do it? Grace is an interesting theme in Scripture because the point of grace is we're getting things that we don't deserve. And maybe when we read this story, we think to ourselves, they don't deserve bread and, and meat, God. Listen to how much they're complaining. After all that they've seen, listen to how much they're complaining. And I think sometimes we think of grace as a New Testament theme, but it's really just a biblical theme. Because this story is a story about God's grace to undeserving people. And yes, they were complainers. And yes, they sounded silly. And sometimes that's us, isn't it? Sometimes that's us. And we don't deserve to be delivered either. Listen, aren't you glad that that's not how deliverance works? Aren't you glad that that's not how grace works? It's not about what we deserve or about what we've earned. It's about a God who loves us and who wants to do a work in our lives and He wants to do a work in our hearts. So yeah, He's going to use our circumstances around us. John Currid in his fantastic commentary on the Exodus Said this, when the Hebrews groaned under the slavery of Egypt, Pharaoh took straw from them to make their lives harder. You remember when they were in Egypt, they were making bricks and they had to have straw as one of the ingredients to make bricks. And when they started grumbling about how bad they were being treated, by the way, they were being treated very badly, contrary to what they said in verse 3 here. Life wasn't grand in Egypt. And when they started complaining, Pharaoh said, well, we have been bringing you straw to make bricks. Now we're going to quit doing that. Go find your own straw, but keep making bricks. When they complained, Courage says, when the Hebrews groaned under the slavery of Egypt, Pharaoh took straw from them to make their lives harder. This is so good. Listen, Yahweh responds to the complaining by abundantly providing for them at the end of the day, whether we get it right or not, God loves us. And He's for us. And we have provision because we have a provider. And so even in the midst of scarcity, may God give us the grace to shift our thinking out of this stinking thinking, right? May God give us the grace to shift our thinking, and to lean all our weight into the things that we know are true. Listen, even when we don't feel like they're relevant, even when it feels like it was the other side of the world and 3,500 years ago, which it was, but He's the same God. And they didn't deserve to be delivered, and they didn't deserve to have this food, and God provided it anyway. So my question for you is not whether or not you deserve to be delivered or whether or not you deserve to have God provide food for you, or to provide whatever it is that you need. My question is, do you trust that he'll do it anyway? In Psalm 111, 4 through 5, it says, He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. How great is that? God has caused... His wondrous works to be remembered. And here you and I sit 3,500 years later talking about His wondrous works. I think that they've been remembered. I think that there's an entire group of people, starting with the Jewish people, but not ending with them because it just made its way right through the thread of Christianity that we're going to remember all that God's done good. God's called His, caused His wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious. And merciful. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God really is gracious and merciful to you? By the way, the idea of grace implies that you don't deserve it. This is the God that we serve, who really is gracious. He's caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful, he provides food. For those who fear Him, even though they had messed up minds in that moment, even though they'd said some pretty bonehead things out loud, they still ultimately feared God. They were still following God to the best of their feeble ability. They were still following God. And He provides food for those who fear Him. He remembers, what does it say? Listen, it doesn't say He remembers your covenant. That's great. I'm happy if you've committed your life to follow Christ. That's fantastic. But if you make it through, it won't be because of your faithfulness. It'll be because of his. Just let that wash over you. Let it wash over you. Listen. I'm there with you. I want to pull myself up by my bootstraps too. But it is so freeing and refreshing to remember that ultimately this thing is not up to me. Deliverance is not up to me. He remembers his covenant forever. He's not going to turn his back on you. So I want you to bow your heads where you are. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to pray together, and then we're going to work our way back through these two verses from Psalm 111. I'm going to give you a chance to pray this idea back to God. God, thank you. Thank you that we can remember your wondrous works, that we can be reminded of how faithful you are, how powerful you are, how loving you are, how present you are, how you're always with us and you're always for us. Thank you for the reminder from Psalm 111 that you are gracious and merciful. Thank you that you provide food and all of our needs when we fear you, And that ultimately it's not about us remembering a covenant that we've made to you. Ultimately, our deliverance will come because you remember your promise to a people who are undeserving. It's not about us being faithful because we are not faithful. We make mistakes, we mess up, and yet we know that your faithfulness is steadfast. You're always with us, you're always for us, you're always faithful.